Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is Sunny Megatron. Today, Dustin Garrick is our guest again, here to discuss his previous bio episode. This episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask questions about his really powerful life. And here is a bit more about Dustin. Dustin Garrick is a certified sexologist through the American College of Sexologists International. He is the founder and CEO of The Evolved Masculine, a pioneering coaching and training company for men and authors of the best-selling book, The Evolved Masculine, Be the Man the World Needs and the One She Craves. But before I get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. So I just have to say, Dustin, I so much enjoyed learning about you and, you know, the triumphs and the difficulties you went through and and what led you to where you are now. So Kate and I have a ton of questions. So I'm just going to dig right in. Okay, so I really was stricken in your story by not only your relationship with masculinity, but how you are affecting and improving the rest of the world. So when it comes to men these days, you know, they're confused about their masculinity. A lot of men are rigidly fused to their old antiquated views of masculinity. And you have a message that there's a better way, you know, that allows them to have this epic erotic life. But at the same time, also having a kinder, connected, and more compassionate relationship with their partners. So, you know, however, a person can have an amazing and true message, but if it's not said in a way that the receiver can hear, it's like it was never said. So how do you personally get the men that you're communicating to to actually hear you? Well, first of all, that's a great question. And I will say that Much of what I share has been the same for a very long time, and it's been just years and years of trying to get better at doing just that, how to refine the message so that it can actually be heard and taken in. That said, I was helped a lot (laughs) by the catalyst of the Me Too movement. It created an opening in a lot more men that just wasn't there before. The, a listening started to present itself as more and more men were got a very clear message that the way that they'd learned to do things isn't working and wanting to find some other way. But unfortunately, along with that, there were many men, not, not all men, but many men who didn't really know what to do in the face of that besides kind of shut down more. They're afraid of doing the wrong thing, so they did their own version of what I did, of kind of just cutting off more from their 
uh, more masculine parts of themselves or certain aspects of their sexuality because they don't want to do the wrong thing. But I learned through my own journey that that's not the answer. <laughs> well, isn't that what men are taught from the beginning anyway? You know, you're not supposed to reach out. You're supposed to go into your boy cave and, or man cave and figure this out on your own, right? So the other part of it is, quite frankly, I've made a good chunk of my message appealing to the selfish aspect of people. Yeah, I think that there is an inherently selfish aspect to most people that are seeking answers to their own problems and are seeking a better life. And so I just sought to answer those needs, but to provide answers that actually serve everybody better. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so as you did that, what did you witness in a few men, like uh, some of the men that you, in your mind, you think of as maybe golden examples of coming around? Uh, yeah, well, men generally come in from one of three doorways. Either they're struggling around their relationship with their masculinity, what it means to be a man. Uh, maybe they've always struggled with that or their general sense of confidence. Uh, I'll also put in that bucket, like their sense of like, like purpose or mission or like why they're, what they're doing with their lives. So that's like one set of men. Maybe they're struggling with their masculinity from a sense of like, it's just been very rigid and that rigid way of being is hurting them in some way is now usually by the time they come to me is because they're hitting some sort of a crisis point or it's they've just never been comfortable in their masculinity maybe they've you know been more on the feminine side or they just just had their own version of what I did what I had or had some sort of wounding around their masculinity early in life and just have always struggled finding that connection the other doorway men come through, it has to do with their sexuality, whether it's quote-unquote performance issues, rapid ejaculation, erectile difficulties, or just overall lack of confidence, sexually speaking. And the third area is relational, and particularly in regards to men who are attracted to women in one form or another, uh, having difficulties either getting into a relationship or maintaining a relationship or having healthy relationships, just feeling lost and confused around women and or the feminine. Is there a through line amongst all of those, like something like uh, being disconnected in some way? or? Well, I'd say that it is a very common thing for men to today to be disconnected from their bodies to be stuck in their heads, to intellectualize everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's, it's less about experiencing reality and more about experiencing their ideas about reality, if that makes sense. Okay. And women and sex end up being the same way. You know, they end up being treated as problems to solve. Or, you know, if I just hit the right combination of buttons, I should get this particular outcome. Right. And like, it doesn't really work that way. And, you know, we learn, uh, we're trained so much as men to be performance driven, to be outcome oriented, to produce and provide. And so, you know, you have, uh, sexually speaking, for example, you have men who really just don't care and women are a means to an end, you know, a conquest and or, you know, just about getting themselves off. She's kind of an afterthought in that. But then you have the other side of men who, like, it's all about her. It's all about, you know, getting her off. It's all about, you know, making her feel good. But that's its own 
you know, that creates its own set of problems. And quite honestly, both of those responses are actually ego-driven. Yeah, it seems like it would be its own sort of disconnection, you know, where you're not really truly connecting. Well, he's not necessarily connected to himself and his own experience. These men tend to be good men. You know, they tend to mean well. They'll also tend towards more of that people-pleaser type of a way of being in life. But his he experiences his pleasure, quote, by experiencing her pleasure. But it's because he's not experiencing his own body. He isn't, like, he doesn't really, he's very limited in what he's feeling within himself. And so, quite honestly, I've really come to experience that what men's sexuality is far more complex than we give it credit for in our society. We generally think, well, just about all men can come, so they're fine. Give them something warm and wet, and they're good. (laughs) And (laughs) Am I wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And on one level, I mean, there's some truth to that, but I mean, it, it barely scratches the surface in what we can actually experience and what our bodies are actually capable of. But to be experiencing those things, we need to be connected into our body. We need to be present and not just stuck in our heads. And really, for much of it, we need to be able to drop into a place of deeper connection, which is really where true intimacy and deep passion can only come from. Yeah, and that's where you find the answers. It's not some code that you intellectually understand. Boom. Yeah. So so that leads us to our next kind of category of questions. What do you wish women understood more about men? What do you wish men understood more about themselves and about women? Okay, so these are three questions, really. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that women understood the impact that they can have on men and that because our... Uh, we have a strong narrative uh, that's arisen in our society around uh, men as perpetrators and women as victims, which, you know, is often the case. Um, It can create this mode of not really recognizing the pain that so many men carry and how vulnerable we can be as men and how uh, some of our greatest feelings of vulnerability are with women. And how, you know, I mean, I have men that I work with who are still processing and reeling from like a sentence that that was said to them by a woman a decade ago. You know, some cutting remark, some unnecessarily mean form of rejection or uh, comment about his his penis or his sexual performance. And he's still dealing with it all these years later. Yeah. So that's just you know, one little example, there there are so many ways in which I find both honestly through my own experience, as well as men that I work with, that it it seems that a lot of women just do not really appreciate the power that they can have over men, as well as the impact that they can have on them. When, when you see a woman who does know her power, yeah, what does that look like in your mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can do good with your power and you can do harm with your power, whether you're a woman or a man. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and I've experienced both. <laughs> but we'll speak on the positive here for a moment. So I love women in their power and women who know their power and wield it well and compassionately. A woman who really knows her power, she knows what she wants and she can stand in her desire. But also with that, it can be knowing what you want and standing in your desire without expectation. You know, I had this experience with my wife actually um, at the very start of 
exploring whether we were going to get into romantic relationship 10 years into friendship, where she basically said that she wanted my baby. (laughs) (laughs) And we weren't even like officially a thing at this point. And um, she said that she just, her womb spoke to her, this whole thing. She had this vision, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I immediately contracted. And then she said something like, look, like, I don't know. I didn't know how you were going to respond. And I knew that this was my truth. And however you were going to respond is fine. I don't need you to want this. I don't need you to respond in any way. I just needed to speak my truth. And what happened in your body when she said that? I felt attracted. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, um, uh, maybe I do want then. (laughs) Uh, Which quite honestly is one of the things that I teach men about as well. It's like, you know, as far as men's sexual desires being so experienced as so threatening by many women, I'm like, it's the expectation attached to it. Like, learning to be able to be with your desire, to hold your desire, and not actually need anything from anybody in response to your desire is a very powerful thing. That's a very Buddhist kind of (laughs) non-attachment But it's also very fascinating because like, when you're truly in that state, you actually tend to get a lot of really wonderful results. Right. You get get even more. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. To someone who's not used to that kind of thinking, it may sound counter- intuitive but it's so true yeah yeah so okay now that we're on on the subject of you personally i want to dig more into that so let's talk about your shift from being the erotic rock star to the evolved masculine you know what were the things that were hard to let go of what were the good things and the blessings that came from this and how has your relationship to the concept of ego shifted as you made this transition from one form to another? Well, kind of related to ego, the first thing I want to say is that the erotic rock star was an archetype that I stepped into being. Whereas I think of the evolved masculine as an archetype that I ever strive towards. So I don't think of myself, like I thought of myself as the erotic rock star. I do not think of myself as the evolved masculine. I'm the face and voice of the evolved masculine. I. I have my best. I embody all these qualities that I've identified as the evolved masculine, but I'm not always at my best. I fall short too often, but I keep moving in that direction because I've hold that vision and have held it now for seven years. I'm closer and closer. So that is one big ego difference is that uh, as the erotic rock star, I mean, I was a shit, you know, I was, <laughs> I mean, I certainly thought of myself as. <laughs> that um, I definitely got a bit carried away at points, without a doubt. And there are aspects of that that were attractive. I mean, as a society, we get drawn towards narcissistic behavior. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was exhibiting a lot of it. And then life humbled me. I've heard the phrase before, like, it's better to be humbled than to be humiliated. But I'm actually not convinced I'm grateful for the, quote, humiliation. I'm grateful for the way in which life humbled me. I think that there's a different type of humility that I can hold versus than if it was just an idea that I was striving for without the forced experience. Yeah, sometimes we need the universe to bonk us on top of the head, you know, and then those are sometimes the biggest lessons. 
with erotic rock star, I mean, it's like you think of that Marianne Williamson poem that about stepping, you know, that when I mean, basically, she says, you know, you step into your power and you allow other people to do the same. So it's, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of positives about the erotic rock star, but I can see how it could get out of control a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in my mind, it was always with the intent of like, if I could do it, anybody can do it. Like, I was so lost. I was so distorted around these aspects of, of myself, so disempowered. And, you know, I I completely did a 180 on that. And I just felt like I was showing by example, but didn't exactly work that way. Because after a short period of time, most people didn't know my before. They were only experiencing the after, so to speak. And so, A, people would either pedestal me or demonize me. Uh, <laughs> I can see that. And <laughs> yeah, I loved being seen as a god. I've thoroughly enjoyed that. But <laughs> but <laughs> others saw me as Satan. <laughs> yeah. But, the, you know, none of them were true. I mean, it was all projection, really. Well, when you don't hear the whole life story, then you become an archetype, rather, you know, almost two-dimensional, like a character, rather than this, this three-dimensional human. Right, right. Now, you know, I have a question because, you know, we're talking about three-dimensional humans and the evolved masculine and how sometimes you still struggle with things and you still work on things and you are the face of the evolved masculine. So does that indicate to us that we can never reach a state, and, and I guess this can apply to anyone of any gender, you know, never reach that state like, well, I'm evolved. I did it. I'm done. Is this a constant work in progress? And how so? Yeah, yes. And, you know, I think some people don't like that answer because we like checklists. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I've really relaxed into it of this. To me, it's a life path, but it's a life path worth pursuing because we're, we're always, we're either evolving or we're devolving, you know, we're either blooming or we're dying. Pick a path. Yeah, that makes sense. So on a slightly different note, um, what are some of the gifts that have come from having a lot of lovers and a wide range of sexual experiences that are quite pl plentiful over the course of your life? I want to answer, but I hope you ask me its opposite question, because I think everything has its pros and its cons. And that includes this question. Well, answer it how you would like. Yeah, so I mean, the good things that come from having a uh, a wide, large number—I have a large data set to pull from. <laughs> <laughs> if it was, if the erotic rockster was my laboratory, I mean, really, on some level, every woman, every and man, every and trans and intersex. I mean, I played with. I ultimately had an experience with every type of being there is, but largely, women was on one level an experiment. You know, I was data collecting. It's part of how my mind works. And I, instead of just, I think that, that too many men can get this notion of like, well, this worked with, with my last girlfriend. Why isn't it working with this person? I, I got to, I really enjoyed that process of really exploring and seeing the commonalities and the differences across a wide range of women. And I really tried to, I really tried to play with as wide a range of women as I could. <laughs> uh, I don't just mean numbers. I mean types, like like women from various parts of the world and backgrounds and ethnicities and religions and professions and ages and body types. I wanted to, I mean, I thought of it in many ways as, you know, I have a, 
a spiritual perspective. And Tantra has been a big role in my spiritual path. And for me, raised in a semi-Jewish household in a largely Christian society, I came to believe that we learned about half of God. We learned about the patriarchal God, the, 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 the masculine half of divinity. And so there's half of all of divinity that I, I wanted to know, which is her, uh, the goddess, the divine feminine, many ways in which it's been looked at over time, uh, Shakti and Tantric lineage. And so while I explored her within myself as well and wanted to understand how she manifested in men and you know non-binary individuals, those who really play that spectrum, I also just really loved exploring her infinite expressions through different women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, the idea of we only know half of God, you know. Yeah, at best, right? It. <laughs> Depending on yeah, how of you. Course. Yeah, I, I just mean that that we really. I mean, most of us really learned what God was through a masculine lens. And to me, it's missing half the picture. It's like, it's walking through life with one eye. Yeah. Yeah. So did we get to the flip side of that? I, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm guessing the flip side of what disadvantages or negatives did it have having such a, a huge portfolio of experiences? Well, one, it was hard to choose. <laughs> the notion of getting married well, ultimately, we've landed not 100% monogamous, you know, more of a monogamish, um, even slightly more opening right now. Still, like, choosing, like, my singular, like, partner was a little hard when I felt like, quite honestly, again, this is, has some ego attached to it, feeling like I had near infinite choice. How do you choose? I mean, I have a hard enough go going to the, like, picking out toothpaste sometimes with, like, 30 options now. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that element. But there are also certain elements of it's hard for me to have new firsts. You know, there's a feeling of I've freaking done it all. Uh, <laughs> my wife gets so excited when there's some sort of first experience for me because she's like, I don't get to have many of those with you. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like there's there's a certain like loss of luster that you know I've just had I've experienced so much and had so many sexual experiences that it doesn't there's a certain acclimation that occurs so it's a little hard to say but I feel like there's something that's a little bit harder for me to reach. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a I've seen it done it feeling. So let's talk about community. You know, you've you've been connected to a lot of different communities, Burning Man, uh, Tantra, the community. Activism communities. Yes, yeah, activism, the community in Mexico that you talked about that shifted your life. So what is your opinion on community right now? And what changes do you believe need to occur specifically inside the Tantra community? Because I know we had some discussion about that in order for it to be more healthy. Well, first of all, it's a little bit hard for me to speak about the Tantra community because I've been out of it for so long mm. now. So I don't know how much it's evolved. I'm sure it has had some changes, particularly since the Me Too movement catalyzed. But I also hear that there's still more to do. But my personal perspective is as a spiritual sexual community, it does have a bit of a bad rap in larger spiritual communities. and. 
I think I've been saying for a long time that the solution, if it wants to have a good reputation, <laughs> is not to just clean up the unethical stuff, like the abuse of power type of situations. That's not enough. The, the solution really is it needs to be the model of sexual integrity, the model that others, other communities look to. And in my opinion, it's a long way off from that. And so that's what I've really been trying to cultivate in my life and in my work, which is not easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm curious about that community in Mexico. You gave it a name. I don't recall what the name was. Like, what, what do you think it was about that community? Because it almost sounded like it was, of everything that you mentioned over your life, it sounded like it was just like a, a pretty purely positive and how it shifted you so dramatically. Well, it might be because it was time encapsulated, you know, it was three weeks of life. <laughs> uh, most, most things, most people, most communities, the more time you spend with them, the more you start to see their shadow side. But I mean, I would just say there was a, a certain global traveling conscious community, which that itself has morphed and changed over the time since. And I think its shadow has become more pronounced in time. I mean, you figure it, that, that was 2004. Facebook did, wasn't even invented yet. You know, like uh, these worlds of like, I don't know, conscious communities, people who are in, actively working towards waking up humanity into a deeper connection with one another, etc. I don't think we're connected in the same way that they are today. It certainly didn't have the type of global digital connection that's available to everybody now. So I don't know. It's, it just was an introduction to a new way of thinking that I dove deep into. And it found its own, you know, I find its own shadow. Like I, I really like seeing people like the two of you, quite honestly, who have certain spiritual connection and that being part of your path. Um, I know, especially Kate, I wasn't so sure about you, Sunny, but who also hold a high priority to things like racial and social justice, which quite often these are separate worlds. Yeah. And they, in my mind, they shouldn't be, you know, like, uh, I agree. Sex positivity has everything to do with other social justice efforts, you know, mm -hmm. and, I agree. and spirituality can very easily interweave with social justice efforts, you know? Well, I very much agree with some things I've heard from you about this, Kate, before, that the, it's why we have this, like, spiritual awakening and opening is so that we can create a more equitable world. Yeah, absolutely. You don't hear enough of that. There's so many people that do spiritual bypassing, and it's, it's just so heartbreaking that they don't and realize. quite honestly, I'd like to see more. I would like to see more on the other side as well. You know, I'd li like to see more of, I, I don't know, we'll call activism communities do more of that deeper personal and spiritual developmental work. I think there is more crossover starting to happen, but it's a small minority right now, my, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, you have to see the, the systemic whole and people have a tendency to just look at the microcosm of what they're interested in. They don't see how all these things interweave sometimes. Yeah. Let's see. So this, this is a bit of a hard turn, but you had mentioned sexological body work and as being part of your path. And I mean, the way I would describe sexological body work is it's one-way touch. You're a type of healer, you know, one-way sexual touch, usually. 
or and maybe you should define sexological body work or you know you could define it better than me and what are some of the important things that you learned as you were doing that because i'm sure you learned from a lot of your clients yeah yeah so i haven't I haven't particularly identified as a sexological body worker in over a decade. Um, I did my initial training 15 years ago. I worked as a sexological body worker for a few years very specifically. It's really about... So if most body workers tend to think of themselves as holistic, and yet they, they work on the entire body but the pelvis most of the time. And meanwhile, most people carry trauma in their pelvises. And so it is about being able to get into the pelvis, including very specifically on or in the genitals, but not solely, um, to release muscular tension, to help move trauma out of the body, but also to, I don't know, help reset some of the nervous system, to show it. Yeah, to help people have different experiences in their body that maybe they didn't know before, so they can start patterning in a new way. Was there anything that you feel like you learned from your clients during that time that you were doing that? Uh, yeah, just how, well, I helped, that helped me see that men also carry trauma, which prior to that, I was just f- focused in on how widespread uh, sexual trauma was in women. And just, I don't know, the, the grief and pain that people can hold and knowing that the vast majority of people were not getting things like sexological body work. It was just, we're dealing with these wounds and these traumas and not knowing a way out, it really led me to truly believe strongly that uh, trauma lives in the body and that if you want to release, if you want the trauma out of your body, you need to address it through the body. Yeah. I think more and more we're understanding that. So I want to speak to in regards to men and masculinity in my own experience. Like I, I, I really struggled with my temper is one way I can look at my relationship to anger for many, many, many years. And growing up in the household I did definitely set the foundation. And then my relationships just further cemented them as I would attract in partners who had the same, you know, come from volatile households and and we would just carry it forward into our relationships. And I try I wanted so much to overcome my anger to, to, I don't know, to beat my anger into submission. I don't know (laughs) what it was. You know, I I hated my anger. I wanted, I felt controlled by it. I, all these things. And, and like the message I'd hear would be essentially, you, you know, just be a warrior. Like, just like tell yourself you're not going to and don't. And it just never worked. Um, the thing that made the biggest dent for me was deep, trauma, um, like uh, somatic, meaning body-based trauma work, and starting to get into and move this stuff that was stored in my body. And then I started to find, wow, those triggers are just not there in the same way. Mm, Yeah, it is. It is. So, you know, let's go from anger to violence, because what really struck me in your story is how much violence was interweaved throughout your early life from, you know, your childhood home to, you know, the drive-by murder of your neighbor to the police officer injuring you, you know, breaking your bones. So how have you worked through your feelings regarding violence? You know, what are your feelings now? And what have been the safe harbors across your life that have helped you survive all the violence that you've witnessed and experienced yourself? 
<laughs> and we talk for the rest uh, of the, the hour. <laughs> no more questions. It's going to be a big one. <laughs> well, I grew up loving uh, horror films and like slasher films and like hyper violent films of various sorts. And these experiences, especially police brutality stuff, ended that for me. Like, I just lost my taste for witnessing violence. I mean, I carried significant PTSD for a, a while. Um, I remember one time just going into a bathroom. And this was probably like five years later after the police brutality incident. And I, I went to a rest, public restroom and two police officers walked in and I started sweating profusely. And my heart rate shot, shot up and I just like bolted out of there. So, I mean, again, I've done a lot of work and... <laughs> I don't have the same response now, but it definitely gives me a, a lot of deep compassion and empathy for particularly the black male experience in America. Uh, and of course, it extends beyond there. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't really understand what it, the word trigger means because it's used in the, the ma- you know, the masses use it and they don't understand that if if a situation occurs that is s- specific enough in terms of the five senses or just you know, situationally, that literally your whole circuit board, your whole body lights up as if the past trauma that's being pulled up is happening now, you know? I don't think many people really understand what happens in the body when somebody gets triggered as much as you did in that bathroom. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Yeah. (laughs) So the, what's safe harbors? I don't know, I'm sure... I'm sure women in sex play some role here. I mean, even since my like my first sexual experiences, my uh, first partner, we ended up being together a bit over a year. And I think it's why I wired so much to direct uh, my life around sex is that I was having this incredibly volatile home life. And then I started having these experiences where when I was with this woman, I felt peace. I felt accepted. I felt love and belonging. And it felt like such a strong contrast to the experience I was having at home. You're having corrective experiences. That makes sense. It sounds like, (laughs) yeah. And so I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time picking myself apart. Uh, (laughs) But that that has a lot to do with how my life ended up orienting so much towards sex. That makes sense. So between... so. It's interesting. It's almost like the same answer. It's all somatic work, you know, like either somatic work with a healer or somatic work in the form of sex. Yeah, like stealth somatic work. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. didn't know it was happening, but it was. And, you know, it's just expected one of the things that uh, some people talk about, about how for a lot of men, when they think that they're wanting sex, it's actually intimacy and connection and like belonging that that is being sought just we don't we don't have general permission to even actively want that or often other avenues to get those needs met so sex is the way you know i I can't remember who i heard say this whether it was a therapist or who it was but they were saying how a lot of times women get you know, a feedback loop of affection in so many different ways, through compliments and hugs and all of this. And for men, a lot of times, all of the different needs that we might have, like comfort and and touch, you know, just everything is solely met in the bedroom through sex. Yep, I think that that's uh, definitely played out. 
Let's see. So you've had a lot of injuries and physical pain over the course of your life. Is there any pain that you've experienced that you're actually grateful for in some way or has been a spiritual game changer or has contributed to a positive life change? And, and Yeah. Well, I think all of it, quite honestly. I mean, we'll, the first thing with the uh, wrestling back injury it set me off on this path in so many ways. It set me off on on this path of being a healer. It's the reason why I first went to massage school, which is what first got me to connect to my body and to my breath, both of which have been foundational to my entire life path. It taught me about my ability to bring focused attention onto another human being and leave them better as a result. Uh, they sh- it showed me that when I finally, 12 years later, realized I could do something about this and then started to really experience those changes, it really was my first tangible experience that we can radically transform our life experience so much more than I previously believed was possible. And I started to apply it to other areas of my life. And then the the police brutality incident, they did not break my bones, by the way. They tore my rotator cuffs and herniated a, a disc in my neck. Uh, <laughs> not great, but different. <laughs> that after my spirit, after what I call my spiritual awakening, we were still in a lawsuit with the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. And, you know, there were 38 of us involved in that lawsuit. And I was like, if this goes to court and they put me on stand, like, what is that going to be like? Because some part of me wants to say, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm still suffering. I mean, like, my shoulders and my neck are not the same as they were before. <laughs> I run into little limitations with them both. I get to achy in, in them at times. But it catalyzed. No, I, you know, I get it. It's like, it, we're not saying really thank you to our perpetrators. Or, you know, I've given the example of when I had cancer and how that, like, changed me for the better. It's not like... I'm saying thank you to cancer per se, but it's like, it's what you choose to do with the struggle and what you learn from it. And when you learn from that struggle, it can really make you a better person. I'm curious that doctor that you had in high school that was so horrible. If you could go back in time, is there anything that you would say to him? Am I 15 speaking to him or am I 42? <laughs> Maybe both. I'd like to yeah. hear both. <laughs> It's difficult because at 15, I, I, well, part of me just wants to say, fuck you. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's ignorance on his part. You know, I, I'm sure he believed what he said, but I also doubt that he would understand the impact it would have on me. I just want to know that we are capable of so much more. And that at 15, I, I didn't need to take on that message that I'm broken. That even if it was slow, if I oriented myself towards what I can do, I would have been in a very different place as I developed over these next several years. Because again, that blooming versus dying aspect, my, my body was moving towards dying. You know, My body was constricting year by year because I just believed that's all that was available. And when I believed that I could heal, I started moving in a more healing direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I want to know about Destin the dad. So tell me about, you know, what from your childhood informed the dad that you are today? And what kind of dad are you now? And what kind of dad do you anticipate being in the future when your kids are teenagers and even adults? You ask a lot of questions at once. Yeah. Uh, 
I want to start by giving some positives because, you know, I, I shared some of the harder aspects of my father and my relationship with him. But I know my dad provided. He worked very hard to make sure that me and my sister always had everything that he could give us. And even, even my mom, who he didn't even like, he always made sure that the family had what it needed. And I know how to, I know how to do that. You know, I know how to devote myself to making sure my family is taken care of. And there's a downside to that. Like I can overwork myself. I do it in a different way than my dad, but, (laughs) but I can overwork myself, but my family is never going to want, you know, they're never going to lack. And I appreciate that being kind of built into me. He also set into my mind that I could do whatever I set my mind to, which is interesting because I don't think he ever believed that about himself. But he said that to me enough throughout my childhood that I just took it on. And I've created a lot as a result. So that is definitely something I bring forward. As a father, I bring a lot of attention to making my my daughter's three, my son is six months. So with him, it's like barely, barely, barely getting started. So it's a lot easier for me to answer these questions with her right now. I put a lot of attention to making sure she understands her bodily autonomy, that her body is hers, and that I respect it. I don't there are times she teaches me that I do need to hold boundaries with her. <laughs> but there are I allow a lot of freedom and if I go to pick her up and she's like, I don't want to be picked, like, you know, no, put me down or <laughs> any sort of thing, unless there's an absolute need, which is much, much smaller percentage of the time, I put her down. Like I respect her wishes when it comes to her body, unless there is a reason not to. Right. That's, that's such a blessing that she's going to instill. And, and when she grows up, you know, that's going to help her so much in her teenage years and as a woman. Yeah. And likewise, I put a lot of attention into sex positive, non-shaming around body, genitals, sex related things. I got my first book on sexuality when I was like six and it was very age appropriate. It was called Where Do You Come From? And it had like little chubby you know, mom and dad, you know, that loved each other. And it describes sex as being tickled with a feather and stuff like that. So from the time I was little, I was always taught, you know, that I never had the perspective that sex was dirty or shameful or anything like that, you know? So it's things like that. My son, I'm also very inspired by them to continuously, uh, I don't know, show up as a better, not just father, but husband. You know, like being a good partner to my wife is being a good father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm curious, if you ran into a man, I'm kind of changing the subject a little bit. If you ran into a man and he was like, you know, super hyper privileged, like white, male, super handsome, super tall, super wealthy. And he was like, why should I make these changes? Like, basically, the he wouldn't put it this way, but the patriarchal uh, model really works for me. Like, why, why should I change? What would you say well, to that I do, guy? I, <laughs> I get opportunities. <laughs> well, usually, if they're speaking to me, it's because there's something that's not working. There's something that they're wanting different than how it is. 
And it might be that the way that they've been like, yes, it's easy for them to attract in women, but they're not, they've hit a point where they want something more from their relationships. Maybe they started getting negative feedback or again, maybe particularly since, since the Me Too movement where more women are being more vocal in some way, things that were working for them before aren't quite working. To be honest, when a man is in their place of everything seems to be working great for me, I'm very limited in what I can do with them. I decided some time ago that I'm not going to waste too much energy there. That I think that it's more about a hundredth monkey. You know, it's it's more about hitting a tipping point of men. There are so many men who are seeking a new way. There's more than enough for me to, you know, for my attention to be there. And as we cross certain thresholds, more and more men come on board. So the ones that you speak of might be the last ones to get on board. That, okay. You know, there are, there are always going to be the last ones to get on board of whatever change we're talking about. But now, do you think those last ones to get on board that, you know, everything's fine that, you know, do you kind of give them the side eye like, well, eventually it'll catch up to you and you'll be, or do you think like, well, you know, it already is kind of screwed up, but you're pushing it away and denying it. I mean, do you think that there are truly men out there just like enjoying the patriarchy where nothing's wrong and nothing will ever be wrong? I don't think that that usually happens. I think that that usually it catches up in one form or another. It just might be a while. You mentioned that they that they're just denying it or pushing it away. I think that that for many of these men, they do deny it and push it away until something breaks. Again, I, I've I've worked with men who are in their fifties and built hyper successful businesses, or you know, uh, became very wealthy have family, all this stuff. And then suddenly, quote unquote, suddenly, their wife is filing for divorce. And he feels like this came out of nowhere. I'm like, sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) There are no signs, no warnings. (laughs) So again, this is like things that are just not being seen or not being paid attention to until they can't be denied any longer. Well, you know, isn't that part of privilege not having to see? Like still being successful and not having to understand is, you know, part of privilege, you know. And sometimes it's like health crisis, uh, and the health crisis causes a complete reevaluation of life. Like my dad is an, incri- an entirely different person since his prostate cancer ten, fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago, it, it he really faces mortality, and something radically shifted inside of him. Yeah, it does shift your priorities where it's like anything that is superfluous, you let go of, and anything that's really important all of a sudden becomes magnified. Well, when you when you experience extreme vulnerability, you can have greater compassion and empathy for other people's vulnerabilities. Right. I think that that has a lot to do with why I have a high degree of empathy for others. Like, I I know what it's like to feel less than. I know what it's or, or to be treated as less than. I know what it's like to internalize those messages. I know what it's like to struggle. Yeah, no it's pain. like that understanding is the what leads you to that co- compassion for such a large group. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. So you have just had this amazing life, haven't you? You know, and it just seems like you know, all I'm grateful. 
I speak of it as full spectrum. You know, it's <laughs> incredibly high highs, incredibly low lows, but it's been amazing, really. Like when I look at the whole, and it's one of the things my tantric path has, has taught me is to embrace the whole. When I look at the entirety of it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it seems like you've had a lot of growth from both both the pain and the rewards, you know? And, and one thing that, that pops into my mind is the woman that you dated from Burning Man that kind of helped you create the erotic rock star. When you talk about her, it's a it's beyond talking about her like she's a muse. It almost feels like she just lit up your circuit board in a certain way. It almost feels like this mm-hmm. energetic <laughs> shift that connecting with her created, you yeah. know? And I think that's right. You know, and it's interesting how, you know, I hear how all the pain, the violence and the injuries that you learn so much from them, but then there's also these beautiful moments that are entirely positive where a wo- oftentimes a woman just literally shifted your energetic field in a way, I know that sounds woo-woo, that took you into a different direction. 100%. And I, I carry guilt, shame, pain around the fact that, you know, sh- some of these same women also experienced the worst of me. Well, all you could, I mean, you can't undo the past, but you can continue to try and learn from that and do better in the future and, and do better with the women and men that you connect. And perhaps that's a way of continuing to, to uh, make amends. Well, I think that's one of the things that drives my work with others as well. It's like, okay, like I, I have hurt people and may the positive mark that I'm leaving far outweigh any pain or hurt that I've caused. Yeah. That's all we can do is try and do our best, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for this. This has been, you know, these these last couple of episodes with you have been eye-opening for me. I'm speaking for you, Kate, but I'm sure for you too, right? Mm-hmm. right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, I know our listeners listening along have gotten so much from this. So I want to thank you sincerely for sharing. And it's it's really been a gift to all of us. So thank you. Thank you. To be honest, it's been a gift to me also. Aww. I really appreciate yeah, it. That's you. wonderful. Thank you. Now, for those listening, I invite you to join us again next time where we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.